Hi, thanks for tuning in. My name is Ambika Sharma, and you're listening to Fintech Cafe, a weekly podcasting show that takes place with a live audience on Clubhouse. Today is episode 55, and our topic is banking for women. For this very special topic, we are joined by the founder and CEO of SheBanks, Ms. Julie Rasmussen. Julie is an accomplished entrepreneur. She's an accomplished leader. She brings wealth of experience to the fintech industry. She has made her mark in areas like consumer industrials and in countries like Russia, Ukraine, England, and of course, the United States. I'm very thrilled to bring her to you all. I hope you enjoy the conversation, find her inspiring, and also excited that she is coming into fintech because she's, I think, about to (laughs) blow us all away. So without further ado, let's kick it off with a quick round of intros. My name is Ambika, and I'm a product manager. I have been in the fintech space for about a decade, and I enjoy doing this as a hobby. I am joined every week with my co-host, so I'll pass the baton to her for her introduction. Thank you. Thanks, Ambika. Hi, welcome to Fintech Cafe. I'm Monisha, your host and content creator for the show. By day, I manage product strategy at one of the top five banks here in the U.S., Happy to have you here, Julie. I know this is going to be a little bit of a divergent from our usual conversation, but very excited because from what I've heard and listen, you've been on several leadership related podcasts. So really excited to explore that side that you bring to the table. And then of course, like you mentioned, the soon to be released app with SheBanks as well. So can't wait to dig right in with that, Julie. Would love to hear in your own words, the very broad experience that you've had international, uh, domestic, speaking fluent Russian, throwing that for a little trivia. Would love to kind of hear your thoughts on how it all came about. Thanks, guys. It's it's a great honor to be here and a lot of fun. The main reason I'm doing this, the main reason I'm into fintech is it's, it's really, it's really just fun. Let's see. I grew up in McLean, Virginia. My father used to work at the CIA at the height of the Cold War. Russia was our big bad enemy. So I think my age group was the largest cohort of Russian studiers in American history. So that's kind of how I got involved in Russia. And I used to work in Manhattan for a bunch of Fortune 50 companies, Kodak, Argyre Nabisco, Chevron, Johnson Johnson, Archer Daniels Midland. And because I was fluent in Russian, I used to take their business development teams into Russia because this was under the Gorbachev government. You know, Gorbachev just passed away, but he was instrumental in opening up Russia 30 years ago and all the U.S. major companies went in. So I was on really on the ground for when that happened. And uh, it was a tremendous opportunity. I'd studied in Russia. I had made uh, I had worked as a production coordinator for ABC film producer in Siberia, making a whitewater river rafting documentary. So did a lot of crazy things when I was younger and decided, you know, maybe I need a more kind of stable career. So I had, I had been studying international affairs at Columbia University, New York, and then I got an offer from the new CEO of Mary Kay Cosmetics to open their corporate operations in Russia. So how, you know, I always, I say, I see that, Tom Cook from MX is in the audience here. I've told Tom before, I have a great saying, you know, make me an offer I can't refuse and I, and I won't. So I, had, I got my two suitcases. I went out to outside my apartment on 
in Manhattan on 110th and Broadway, I hailed a cab. I went to JFK on August 24th, 1992, and I kind of never looked back. So it was really a tremendous, a tremendous opportunity and a tremendous experience. And from there, and you know, your experiences in Russia and now to a fintech. So how do we bridge that gap? So in, in the course of scaling Mary Kay in Russia, we built that company really literally, I built it from zero to a hundred million in five years. Part of this was the state of the economy. Part of this is the power of direct to consumer model that Mary Kay Ash used in building communities of women through really through through network effects, through word of mouth and network effects. You know, we didn't use social media. We didn't have social media. We didn't use any advertising. So if you're providing a good value proposition, people will respond to it. And what was tremendously rewarding through working with tens of thousands of women micro-entrepreneurs during a time of unprecedented social and economic upheaval was that we were providing income opportunities in the, in the years right after the Soviet Union fail, fell, male life expectancy fell to 52 years. This is documented by a sociologist, Murray Feshbach, who used to work for the US government. Why? Because they lost all their life savings through inflation and confiscation, and all the men were drinking themselves to death because of the devastation of, of really losing everything. And the transition was done through this, you know, shock therapy developed by Jeffrey Sachs at Harvard. And you can debate whether that was really the best way to do it or not. But the, the human cost was very high and the pain really excruciating. They had 1,200% inflation. I won't bore you with more of the details, but I had women in my office every day with tears, literally tears, streaming down their faces. My husband drunk, my husband had a heart attack, our life savings are destroyed. I need to put food on the table. I need to buy shoes for my kids. You know, what am I going to do? And so in those days, you know, there's no distribution networks in Russia. There were no credit card facilitation payments. There, there was a, a, a still a, a massive lack of quality consumer goods. And so we taught women how to teach other women to use skincare. And if you've ever lived in Russia, you know, the harm, the climate there is really harsh. So face cream and hand cream are not really luxuries. If you don't use hand cream, your, your hands will simply crack and bleed in, in a climate like that. When I was making a film in Siberia, I used to have, you know, men and women come up to me and ask me for hand cream. You know, their hands were just cracked and bleeding from how dry and harsh the climate is. So the women provide a real service. They teach other women how to use the products properly, the benefits of the product, and they distribute the products. And then they get paid for that service. So there you have education, training, and an income opportunity, and you're helping other people in your community with products that many might see as a luxury. But you know, have you ever tried to live a week with no personal hygiene or personal care products? It's not that pleasant. So I didn't really know anything about fintech until about three or four years ago, but my sons are turning 17 and I'd been having a portfolio career of consulting and sitting on boards, but I'm a serial entrepreneur. I started up six or seven startups in Russia in transportation, food and beverage, security, real estate development, 
I started up the Hertz Master Franchise rental car and leasing franchise for Russia for a private equity group. And then I later did a management buyout and became the majority owner and chairman. To make a long story short, I just kind of thought, hey, you know, I mean, do I really just kind of want to stay retired doing this portfolio career? Or I do have one, do I have one more big startup in me? So I decided to go back to school. I finished my MBA in June of 2020, and I spent three years basically researching and finding out about fintech at Oxford. And the more I found out about fintech, the more I was blown away. And I can tell you that living in Russia, and this is all, of course, before the events of February 24th, which I'm, I'm not speaking to, that in many, many ways, Russia technology in Russia is, is very advanced. I wrote a paper for my fintech class at Oxford, and in 2018, according to a report by Ernst & Young, the top three leading countries in fintech, does anyone want to take a guess and raise their hand what they were? Can we do that? We don't have polls, <laughs> but I'll just say okay. not USA. <laughs> okay, not the US. So number one was China. 87% of the population in China uses fintech, 87% in India, and number three was Russia. 82% of the population in those countries, 80, 80 plus percent, you know, uses fintech. And the United States was ranked down at like number 26 with about less than half of the population using fintech. And if you think about it, this makes a lot of sense because just as in China and Russia, you're never going to lay copper wires or fiber optic. You're going to go right to 5G technology. So in developed countries, even though we are more developed, we also struggle with legacy systems. And if you think about banks and the banking industry and how it has to be inherently conservative and for good reason, that's why it's so hard to get a bank charter and compliance and risk management regulation are so stiff because you've got to protect people's money. It also leaves you with a lot of legacy systems. And this is why banks are, are much slower to innovate. It's not just because you know they don't want to. Many of them try, but it's, it's very difficult to do. They're dealing with a brownfield site for anyone who's familiar with construction technology. Whereas in China, India, and Russia, and in, in fintech, you know, you create a sandbox, you have lower levels of regulation, and you just, you just go really right to the cutting edge technology. And I was amazed at how many digital banks there were in Russia. A very well-known one is Tinkoff Bank, which was also invested in by Goldman Sachs. I, when I lived in Russia, I used VTB, which used to be a Soviet foreign trade bank. But the VTB app on my phone, oh, it was amazing. It was fric frictionless to use, instantaneous, joyful. You just can get on there and do all your banking and bill paying and transfer money anywhere in the world literally in seconds, securely. And when I came back to the U.S., it was very, very frustrating. You know, I, don't, I simply don't want to and don't have the time. I don't want to go into a bank branch and spend an hour and a half there trying to open a business bank account when I can sit in my office and do it on my phone, you know, in about 10 minutes. So the experience of fintech for me is, is just really simply, it's joyful how fast it works. So I love it. I love fintech. You mentioned technology in Russia is advanced, and then you gave examples of user experience. So is it fair to say that when you say the technology in Russia is advanced, you're actually talking about the user experience? 
Yeah, I'm talking about the the user interface, the user and the user experience for sure. It's it's just it's superb. I'll give one example of of a similar experience I did have in the U.S. with fintech, and that was when I applied for the Apple Card on my iPhone. You know, you literally can get an you know Apple Card if you're qualified in about really it was 60 seconds. You know. And then you can pay your bills and see everything on the app, on your phone. It's just incredible. It's an incredible user experience. And think of the productivity enhancements when you don't have to spend hours messing around with your bank just to make a simple wire transfer or do something. You know, it's just happening instantaneously. So that that really got me enamored of fintech. And then how did I how did I kind of think up the idea for SheBanks? Well, in working with tens of thousands of women micro-entrepreneurs, you become acutely aware of the fact that virtually nowhere in the education system are people exposed to principles of personal finance or even basic economic concepts. I was very, very fortunate. My father has a PhD in economics. And so from a very young age, you know, he's teaching me economic concepts like there's no free lunch. If you think something is free, it, it just means you don't know how you're paying for it yet. And, you know, you see women working hard. We did a study that demonstrated on average women have 13 or more roles they fill on a daily basis. They are a cook, a cleaner, a household procurement specialist, a supply chain logistician manager. They're a budget manager. They're a tutor. They are a chauffeur. They're, they are a husband whisperer. You know, they do all of these different things. In addition, they have a job outside the home. We found that on average, and again, this is on average, I'm not, I'm not making any judgments here. On average, men's activities were primarily centered around their outside job that as a major wage earner. And then they, they sometimes would be a sports coach or drive children somewhere and they would be a handyman around the house. But that was about it. So, you know, maybe four or five roles. So not only are women socialized differently, they're not exposed to economic and finance principles. They're not as numerate. They're not as financially literate. And they also self-report that they have less confidence in investing. They don't know where to start with investing. To compound this, I have also studied the language and the imagery used by the financial industry. And again, this is not a judgment. These are just facts. If you think about things being created in the image of their creators, the financial industry is dominated by men. They use language of finance, you know, which happens to be a very masculine vocabulary simply by virtue of the fact that this is this is an industry dominated by men. They use terms and finances about finances that they feel comfortable with. Personally, I feel very comfortable with this language, but I have an MBA in economics and finance, and I have a dad who has a PhD in economics. So if you want to talk about CAGR, ROY, Roe, you know, APR, APY, what's your money multiple on that? Fabulous. I'm game to talk about that. But if I go to most of the women that I worked with, and I'm talking literally tens of thousands of women, or I go to the women in the Target or Walmart parking lot with their cart full of stuff for back to school with three kids in tow, and I say, you know, how's your retirement planning going? What's your, what's your final money multiple on your investment going to be? How's your CAGR on that? You know, their eyes just glaze over. They just want to get away from you, basically. So as a linguist by training, 
um, the language of communities of women is just really starkly different than the language used by the worlds of finance and technology. So if we can translate these financial concepts into, you know, everyday approachable, usable language that relates to women's daily lives, it will really lower the barriers to them entering into the world of financial products and services. And, the, and you know, if you want to debate whether this is even a problem or an issue or if there is even a gap, I will refer you to a study by Women's World Banking that says over in, globally, there are one billion women that are underserved by existing financial institutions and that if women and men used financial products and services at the same rate, the value of the additional economic activity that would be created is more than $300 billion. There was a study by Oliver Wyman that put this figure even higher and said that globally, this is worth $700 billion. I mean, that is, that is massive. I had no idea until I really started to research it. But if we look at the United States, in the United States alone, there are over 100 million women between the ages of 24 and 74 that are, that are really n not participating at the same rate as men in financial industry. And, and there's, there are real significant negative consequences as a result of this. When women have more money, their children are better off. Their communities are better off. They can have more freedom to leave abusive relationships. They have more freedom to leave, you know, dead-end jobs and retrain for higher skilled, higher wage-paying jobs. Women fill 76% of part-time jobs because they need flexibility for childcare, elder care, and they often retire early to take care of spouses. So, and, and when you compound that with the fact that they're paid less and they have less money at every age and they live longer and they live a much higher proportion, live in poverty in old age. This is like a serious socioeconomic problem that even if you don't care about women specifically and their problems, if you're a taxpaying individual in the United States, you're negatively impacted by this because welfare fair costs go up when women can't work and can't save and manage their own money. So it's, it's really something that if we can move the needle on this, everybody will benefit. Go ahead, Manisha. I have so many questions, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that was a really great insight into your business case of the target demographic and the TAM <laughs> that you're addressing. I'm curious to hear a little more about some of the, you mentioned your app is going to be launching shortly. What are this, maybe a couple of examples of things that you see that women are doing differently, right? I'm assuming there was, you know, research or conversations, end of the day, the job to be done is managing finances. But I'm very curious to hear about how you think that comes through differently when you're targeting women as opposed to men. In terms of how you market products to women, in terms of how the actual products need to be different? Yeah, great one. I was thinking more from an experience standpoint. In what sense? I think what I'm trying to understand is, is there a clear delineation between how, you know, your, your target demographic, the women operate their finances and what they're expecting from and yes. like she banks? Yes, this is a great question. So 
first of all, I mean, this is a fintech cafe. So I'm assuming most people in this room, you know, they've heard of NerdWallet, Mint, YNAB, you know, they know what fintech is. They know what these things are. But I can guarantee you, if we stood outside of Walmart and interviewed women coming out of there, and we asked 100 women, have you ever heard of YNAB? Do you know what NerdWallet is? Have you used Mint? 90% of them will say, no, I've never heard of that. I've never used that. I don't know what that is. What's a PFM? Okay. And then if you explain it to them, they'll probably be like, yeah, I don't have time to do that. So the number one thing, and we, we also know if you guys are familiar with the work of Alex Johnson, who writes FinTech Takes, he's fantastic. The adoption of PFMs, personal financial management apps, even like Mint or YNAB, which are excellent products, you know, it, you get to about 15% of penetration into your target market and the adoption and usage stops. Why? Well, it's, it's, it's clear for me because it's boring. <laughs> Saving money is boring. And even though, you know, what Mint is saying, hey, good job, here's a badge, or hey, you, meet your, you met your budget goal, great. You know, big deal. This is this doesn't really give me the same kind of dopamine hit I get, you know, if I go out and get the, the latest, you know, Manolo Blahnik shoes or a Prada bag or whatever, right? So if you will take part of your revenue stream or profit stream, and instead of spending it on more advertising or content channel marketing, like NerdWallet does, NerdWallet spends like 70% of revenue on content generation. This is a single channel. And wow, is that expensive? And wow, is that a huge, massive chunk of revenue to spend on, on content? I can tell you that a direct-to-consumer company like Avon, Tupperware, or Mary Kay, they build and generate massive EBITDA and growing communities by spending about 36 to 40% on revenue of revenue on rewards and recognition programs. This is a system of gamification that they were using before gamification, you know, was even a word. And they did it without any kind of content marketing or social media advertising or marketing or whatever. And now with the tools we have today of social media where you can, you know, with a click of a button, launch a viral marketing campaign, you know, you can you can build a member community by just taking some of your marketing and advertising budget and, and just giving it back to your community. So now in the in the SheBanks app, when you reach your budgetary goals or you've saved up this money or whatever it is that you've done, as you improve your financial health and your financial wellness, you'll get a, a financial wellness score, not related to your credit score. It's based on reducing debt, increasing savings and investing. As this goes up, you'll earn SheBanks points. Now you redeem these SheBanks points for rewards, rewards that are relevant to women. If I had a credit card that would, would instead of sending me, and this is based on a real life uh, credit card that I have, a list of 147 different offers with tiny little logos, and each offer has four numbers I have to process to understand if it's worth it to me or not. This does not bring me joy. This is annoying. I don't have time to do this. But if this app, who, which I have used since 1986 and spent, it's a credit card that has an app, that I've spent probably $800,000 or a million dollars on over this time period because it's a business credit card that I use to travel all over the world. If they would instead look at my buying history, which they have, and send me three or four offers of the top things that I spend money on, Wow, I would be amazed. I would be overjoyed. I would be like, wow, they really know me. They really care about me. They've selected things that are meaningful and important to me and sent them to me. And I just have three things to pick from. And if, you know, next, I pick this one this month, I pick the next one next month. 
Additionally, think about a credit card for women with kids where you could redeem points for, let's say, three hours of babysitting from a bonded and insured reputable childcare agency in your city. Or what woman wouldn't like to have four hours of deep cleaning from a bonded and insured cleaning service in their community? So these are things that support women's busy lifestyles, you know, and that, you know, I don't have any credit card today offering things like this. So what if on your app it popped up and says, you know, hey, Manisha, this month you had 1,500 points. Great. You've reached the guru investing level. Here are three things you click and, you know, we'll send them to your house or, you know, we'll send you the certificate. Spa day babysitting, house cleaning, or like three weeks of, you know, meal delivery service from Freshly. Yeah, that would be something I would really be into. So that's one significant difference of how our app ecosystem will work. The other thing is that uh, BNY Mellon, a lot of these financial institutions, BNY Mellon just did a study where they admit, asset managers admit, you know, their target market, their default customer persona is a man, that 86% of their products are by default designed for men and aimed at men. I mean, that just is crazy to me. Women's, women's life journeys are very significantly different in several ways. They, they tend to, so if we're talking about professional jobs, at the intake level, Intake levels of men and women are about 50-50, but as the talent funnel approaches the C-suite, women significantly drop off, which is one reason why I believe we have fewer women on boards and fewer women CEOs. When women take time out during childbearing years to have kids and then devote time towards taking care of them, their career tracks stall or drop off and they never fully recover. So let's have some financial products that are designed for people who happen to be women in the majority. And again, this many men could also have a similar career path if they are the primary caregiver or they're taking time out to do this. Let's have an, a financial products designed for those people that takes into account, you know, this dip in earnings power and, and addresses that. So that's, that's one example of how products can and should be different. Does that kind of answer your question? Yes. It, it sounds like there's definitely an opportunity. And, you know, I mean, that level of customization could work potentially for, and I was just chatting with one of our participants, Sean, who's in the audience. It, it could be, right, like that level of customization, which I think we've seen through a lot of the fintechs opportunities is how do you better cater and customize to that specific segment needs or demographic needs and yeah that makes sense yeah that's just one way i would totally sign up for house cleaning i, <laughs> I don't know why no one has ever done that so when you I know it, i was like yeah why why is that exactly. not an option for me well and, and this is what i you know it's like this is if i had a credit card who gave that to me oh i would never leave them the customer loyalty for a credit card that was every month sending me you know Here's a massage. Here's a house cleaning. Here's a, you know, two weeks worth of fresh meals shipped to your house and, you know, whatever. I would, I would never leave this credit card. And I would tell every woman I ever knew or every, you know, dad sitting at home taking care of kids, you know, I would tell them about that, this product. Another thing that we have found is, and this comes from a former woman investment banker with Goldman Sachs, who now, who then now works with Women's World Banking. 
And they studied women's approach to buying financial products and services. And this should come as no surprise. When it comes to buying products and services, women have a different psychology than men, just as they speak a different language of community. So whereas men, and again, these are gross generalizations, everything I'm saying, you know, can apply equally to men and women. It's just that the majority of women tend to be this way. And the majority of men tend to be this, this, this way. Men will look at the institution, okay? It's MetLife, it's highly reputable. They'll compare a few products, let's say from, you know, Providence Life, MetLife, whatever. They'll look at the, the numbers, they'll say, okay, yeah, there are minor differences. These are the differences. They're all good products. Fine, I'll take this one. Boom, they're done. Women don't approach it that way. For women, the number one most important thing to do first is build a relationship and build a relationship of trust. So you have a longer runway and you have a much higher upfront investment in building this relationship with a woman. However, once you build that relationship of trust with her, they found that women will then buy two or three or four products from you. So it's a completely different customer lifetime value dynamic. You have to invest more upfront, but you recoup your investment you know, on the back end from customer lifetime value. The financial industry tends to follow the first model because most of their customers tend to be traditionally men. So I don't know if you're familiar with psychometric testing like Myers-Briggs and a lot of people think that's, you know, just a bunch of hooey. But, you know, Myers-Briggs, one of the metrics that they measure is do people tend to be more logical thinkers and use logic in thinking or do they tend to be more emotional and go more on intuitive feelings and emotion? And what they have found is that in the general population, men, 70% of men tend to be on the logical thinking side. And again, this is no kind of judgment or anything. And whereas women, it's the opposite. You know, 70% or more of women tend to be more on the emotional intuitive side. So you can see right away, if that's true, that would go a long way in explaining why there is this massive disconnect between financial services and tech and you know the world of women and communities of women. And again, it's a complex set of factors. It's not just any one factor. But if we can bring these two worlds closer together and bridge this gap, there's a lot of benefit to be had for, for everybody all around, both financial institutions who will onboard and gain access to more women customers, women who will then you know, feel more confident in investing and have products and services designed for them, their lifestyles, their earnings pathways, and the way they think and feel. And then the society you know, who benefits from having women be more financially secure. Just seems like win-win all around. Yes. So Julie, we have about six minutes. You've given us so much content and I think you're making people think because I'm getting lots of text messages or questions <laughs> for you. And, I keep, okay. and they're like, can you start the audience Q&A early? I'm like, no, I have lots of questions for her. <laughs> so six minutes and I will just pick the top two questions I have for you. I want to go back to the earlier segment, which was about your, you know, your extensive experience in Europe and Russia. You mentioned you brought Mary Kay to Russia. You were with Mary Kay for 10 years, then Hertz Russia. And then your father was did work with for the CIA. You grew up in Virginia. I want to ask, 
why you didn't do a different career journey. For example, in my mind, given your background, especially given that you speak Russian fluently, why did you not go into foreign service or, you know, become an ambassador, a United States ambassador to Russia? Well, this is a great question. And I hope that when I really am old and retired, maybe I will get to be an ambassador to whatever's left of, of Russia or Ukraine after they get done <laughs> trying to destroy each other. And I have huge, huge, huge sympathies for what's going on in Ukraine right now. It breaks my heart. I have friends, dear, dear friends in both Russia and Ukraine, including former employees. And it is just, it is just devastating. But in a nutshell, I mean, my father did his best. You know, he tried to get me to become a biochemist. He was always incredibly supportive, taught me everything he knows about finance and economics. But I was just a, a linguist, you know. I'm, I'm a student of literature, and I just fell in love with Russian literature and Russian language. And I'm really into systems of linguistic linguistics as systems of meaning, you know, using symbols, which is what math and music are. And so I just started studying Russian, and I just love the nuances of the language, the grammar, the declensions the evocativeness of it. It's an incredibly rich, rich language. And it's an, it's an old language. One of the things about English is that it's a very, very, the, the, the way English is used today, it's used by so many people. It's the language of commerce, not, not really literature in the way that Russian is, is a language of literature. English changes incredibly rapidly and it's used because it is you know, it's a practical language. And so it adapts itself to, to the needs of whoever is using it. So I don't know. I just, I was always a linguist and I was interested in semiotics and, and you know, juristics and hermeneutics and all that stuff. I studied a lot of, of comp literature. But, you know, there's a saying, do what you love and the money will follow. And if it doesn't, you don't really care because you're doing what you love. So I just pursued my passion, which was Russian. And I moved to Russia and... Then I just started to learn about business and I, I saw where I, I really began my career as an interpreter and translator. And I, was sit, I would sit in very high level business meetings, interpreting between often like the chairman of Johnson & Johnson and the chairman of Gazprom. And I would, what I would see happening is that you could translate the words literally word for word completely accurately. And yet neither of the two parties would have any concept of what the other party was trying to say. And so what I would do, and you're not really supposed to do this, I would stop the conversation 10 or 15 minutes in when I saw this happening. And I would say, excuse me for a minute. I want to explain to, you know, uh, the chairman of J&J, I want to explain to him what you're, what you're trying to get at. And so I would say to the chairman of JMJ, what he really is trying to say is this. And he's also not saying this because he doesn't want to look stupid or embarrassed. And so he's not agreeing to that because he doesn't really understand what you're saying. And he's, he, he's, he doesn't want to look like he's dumb and ask questions about it. And when I would say that, you know, we would, you know, you're really trying to get at the meaning of what someone is trying to say, not just the words, and focusing always on what they're trying to achieve. And so in that way, I started to really participate in the conversations and guide what were essentially negotiations and try to, to reach an end outcome where both parties felt satisfied and respected, and that even if they didn't get everything they wanted, 
they felt like they, they got enough and they came out both feeling good. That is a successful negotiation. And that's how I got into business. So I don't know if that really answers your question, but it yeah. does. That's, yeah. That's I mean, happens. I don't, you should do some conflict resolution. I think <laughs> we can benefit from those skill sets of yours. Another question, given that we have one minute left, and I think it's an important one since we haven't asked. At SheBanks, currently you're working on a product. You are seeking beta testers. Could you tell us a little bit more about the app that you're building and how we as a community can help you out? Yes, and I'm very excited about this app. As I mentioned, we have partnered with MX Technologies and they are providing a fully functioning app for us. We will get the production build next week. We will spend about two or three weeks you know, testing it amongst ourselves. And we do have a sign-up list. If you go to www.shebanks.com, enter in your email address, you can be notified when the app is available for download and you can be one of our early beta testers. We will enter you into a contest to win a free weekend getaway to Puerto Rico as thanks for helping us test out the app. So we're looking, we're really looking forward to going live with the app. and. Uh, getting feedback from from users and from members because i come from a consumer products marketing and consumer products background everything we do is generated by problems and challenges of the users and the member community so you know that's who we want to hear from we want to hear what their problems and challenges are what they like what they don't like how can we better serve them how could we address some of these challenges and then we'll go out and you know fine-tune our solution to address that and i just i'm not sure if this is a feature for both android and iphone but at least on the iphone i pinned the link at the top so if you just click on that that will take you to the home page and there you can sign up to be one of the beta testers awesome okay so with that we should open up i mean julie i can ask you so many questions but i have to do Justice, Heather is already inviting herself up here. So Heather, come. But remember, because we are recording today's, today's show, please state your name and uh, where, where you're dialing in from. And then you can share your thoughts or ask questions. Another, I have two other announcements. Another is we just, we are doing this as episode 55. So we've been around. And in order to thank you all, we're organizing our first happy hour. And that happy hour is actually taking place next Thursday, which will be September 8th. The happy hour will take place in Minneapolis, in downtown Minneapolis. And we chose Minneapolis because most of our audience actually comes from Minneapolis. So if we were going to have a happy hour anywhere, it was going to be Minneapolis. So you're all welcome. I will pin that link shortly. This happy hour is being sponsored by Truve and Colton Pond, who's in the audience. He's basically helping us build community in Minneapolis in person. So please join us next week. And, and last announcement is Aspen Tech Cafe, even though we're just a hobby, uh, we decided to partner with one nonprofit and that nonprofit profit is Operation Hope. So in the future, you'll hear us doing events, either fundraising events or doing financial literacy oriented workshops in collaboration with Operation Hope. So more on that in the future. So with that, Heather, welcome aboard. Please ask your question. Well, hello, I'm happy to be here. So Julie, my name is Heather Warner. I am from MX as well, and I'm actually excited. I'm gonna meet you in person in a few weeks at MXS. So I will get to actually, you know, officially meet you. 
But one of the things you said that really resonated with me is when you highlighted the disconnect in financial financial vernacular and how women tend to shut down when it comes to the topic of investments. Because I've personally witnessed this happen probably through my whole financial career. I, I tend to work with a lot of men. And if we're in meetings or even sitting around like a lunch table and the investment topic comes up, all of a sudden there's kind of like this side conversation of women where the, the conversation shifts and men start talking about investments. And so as I was on your website, kind of looking at things before the call today, one of the things it talks about is the education component. So can you kind of talk about when, you know, what, what the plan is from an education component in your app? Are you planning on like posting blogs or doing quizzes? Like what's, what's your thought there to help kind of pop propagate or continue to educate people on some of this financial gap that we have and we face as women. So we're not continuously at a disadvantage. Absolutely. This is such a great question. So on the, on the website, we want to be posting content that is easily accessible. It does not use financial jargon. It uses images and language that women can easily relate to. I mean, just really simple, you know, simple, plain English. And again, you know, as a linguist, really focused on that. And, I've, you know, it's kind of like, well, if you can't explain something in simple language so that anyone can understand it, you know, I, I'm not really sure that you're doing a good job. I think almost anything can be explained in that kind of way. So, for example, I wrote an article on uh, APR. You know, what's APR? Apples, peaches, and rhubarb? No, it's your annual percentage rate on your credit card. And why is this important? And I use images of like an apple pie that I baked and measuring cups. And I, I use it to demonstrate that if you're keeping a balance on your card, you know, this is what happens to your pie and this is how it adds up over time. And, you know, this is so this is why you shouldn't do it. And if you have a card that's over 27 percent or whatever, you know, here's 10 cards that are 15 percent or lower. And what's one of the great things about the MX app is that we can insert URLs or a tile, whereas when members click on it, they can go to our website and get this content. Also, because of the MX analytics suite and the marketing hub, we can analyze members' data. And again, we keep all the data completely secure. It is completely private. We don't share any data. MX uses bank level encryption technology. So, you know, this is, this is, this is only data that users allow us to see, and it's absolutely inside of an iron vault. But we could see, for example, members that have credit cards with high APRs and that keep a balance. So it's just a no-brainer to inside the app, send to these members a link to a lower APR credit card. Bingo, you know, so they immediately save money. This is affiliate marketing at its simple simplest. We get paid by the credit card company for bringing new customers and everybody wins except for the credit card that has the high APR. So, you know, but the consumer wins and the finance company that's offering a lower APR product wins. and. And, you know, it's that simple. Awesome. Yeah, I, I like I said, I love the financial component. I, I use a, a, a fintech app for my kids and make them take a quiz every single week. And as much as, you know, they 
kind of hoo and haw around taking the, the quiz. <laughs> They've learned so much. And it's those those little touch moments that really do like make a difference and, and make things, I guess, help, help with the change that's needed. So thank you. Right. And, and you could see a scenario where there are quizzes on the website. And when members take a quiz, they can get points just for taking the quiz, because just by taking the quiz, they'll learn something. And then as they improve their score, they can gain points. So there's there's incentives to engage and re-engage. You get rewarded for that. And then, you know, you get you get something you really want sent to you. Awesome. Thank you, Heather. Uh, Julie, there is a question in the chat. It's for Abinet. I hope I said his name right. So I'll just read. He says, I love the concept and reason for having this product. I'm not very clear about what this particular product is solving compared to the other neobanks that others are not. I understand the education and financial wellness benefits. Is personalization the primary differentiator? That's a fantastic question. So one thing about banks and banks having an account aggregation app is that I, you know, a lot of consumers don't really want their bank to see what they're doing with all the other financial institutions, because a lot of those financial institutions can be direct competitors to their bank. So there's an inherent kind of conflict of interest when banks roll out a, what is an account aggregation app, which is what a personal financial management app does. Because we are not a bank, you know, we don't have any any vested interest in promoting, you know, one institution's products over any others. So we simply want to choose the best products out there and promote them to our members. So that's a very big distinction between us and and a traditional bank or a neo bank. And that's something that that banks are fighting uphill when they try to introduce this sort of personal financial management app. So I hope that addresses that part of the question. And I forget, what was the second part of the question? I think that was primarily it. He was just asking for okay. what the primary differentiator was. Yeah, well, no, here's, and here's the big primary differentiator. We're going to make personalized recommendations based on your individual buying and spending and debt situation. So, you know, we're not just going to recommend, recommend you some random thing. It's going to be like, okay, we see that you have a mortgage, but you don't have a home warranty policy. If you have a major appliance or system go down, that can cost you a lot of money. Here's a great home warranty policy you can buy. So for, that's just, you know, that's one use case scenario. And then the personalization and the rewards. You know, we see that you spend $150 at Target every September and you have kids. We don't even need to know that you have kids. If you go every August and you spend a bunch of money at Walmart or Target more than usual, it's probably back to school expenses. So how awesome would it be to get, you know, here's a $120 gift certificate at Target for your back to school expenses. So the personalization, both in the types of products recommended and the rewards. Great. Thank you, James. Let's try again. Hi. I hear you. Yes. (laughs) There he is. (laughs) <laughs> thank you all for for coming thank you julie for for being here so one piece that i had noticed when you were talking previously was you were mentioning the the no or low budget market for marketing philosophy i was curious if that's something you're going to be practicing with she banks 
Yeah, absolutely. Because one of the things that you see about fintechs, and I also did a study and wrote a paper on Revolut. I don't know if you've heard of Revolut. It's really big in Europe. You know, it's it's easy to acquire customers when you, as one of my professors said, you know, you're selling a $20 bill for $10. You know, you're spending $200 to get a customer whose value is $100. So, you know, you're, you're giving away much more value to acquire that customer than that customer is bringing, as you will see by Revolut, which has raised, you know, billions and is valued at billions and is still massively unprofitable. Their last raise, Nick Staronsky was like, they just raised on 100, 800 million. He's like, no, no, this is the last raise. This is the last one. We're going to be profitable after that. I don't see it in the numbers. I don't see any, I don't see how he's expecting to turn profitable because when you build a company based on spending a lot more than you make to acquire customers, I mean, how hard is that? You know, I can do that easily. Anyone, any, I don't want to say anyone, but you know, that's not that hard to do. It's much, much harder to devise a sustainable customer acquisition strategy that allows you to be profitable on a per customer, you know, unit basis. And so that's the secret sauce is that I know how to do this because I've seen it be done by these direct to consumer companies that never spent any money on advertising and, you know, kept their, their spend to this 30 or 40% and, and built sustainable business models with, you know, 15, 16, 25% EBITDAs. When I was running Mary Kay Rush, I had a 36% EBITDA. Okay. I spent nothing on advertising. I mean, that's, that's dreamland, right? So I'm not going to replicate that, but it does exist. It has existed. I know how to do that. That's amazing. Thank you very much. Sure. Over to you, Sean. Thank you. It's, it's, it's a great conversation and sort of really amazed that's at your background, Julie. I think one question I had was you talked a little bit about sort of, you know, sort of sitting outside of Walmart and talking to, you know, a hundred women about can you talk a little bit more about whether that's your sweet spot sort of what is your you know sort of persona when you look at your your customers that are to come through and kind of leverage your tool great question so we you know women are the single underserved market but they are by no means monolithic right there are as many user personas as there are women and men in the world and yet we still can make generalizations and we see characteristics that tend to be similar and cut across these demographics and that certain demographics have much more in common across these certain traits than others, one of them being women. And yes, I am definitely thinking about the vast, vast untapped market of women who are busy doing all those 13 things every day that I talked about and that are in that Target Walmart or, you know, parking lot or that Walmart parking lot or the Piggly Wiggly or wherever they are. We will go to where our target market is and they are not reading the Financial Times. They are not watching Bloomberg television, okay? They, they're just not. I guarantee you, they're not reading The Economist. You know, they're not reading The Financial Times. I'm reading all that, but they're not doing that. They, they don't care about those things. So if you really want to reach these consumers, you have to understand their daily life. You've got to go to where they are. And yeah, that's, that's where we want to reach them. And one of the ways that direct-to-consumer works is 
is by really doing that. You go to where these consumers are, you meet with them, you talk to them, you build a personal relationship. They see that you're real. You know, SheBanks is not something dreamed up by some, you know, marketing committee in some huge mega corporation. And I know, I know how this works because I've worked in huge mega corporations and I know how these marketing departments work. And who are they really having to sell to? They have to sell often to internal audiences, which are their bosses and the executive committee and the board and the chairman of the board and the CEO. And if they don't, they don't like it and they don't buy into it and they think it's gross, you know, they're not going to approve it. That's, that's a big, huge problem with a lot of corporate marketing and why a lot of marketing that target women targets women, you know, women say turns them off and is just wrong. Even when the marketing department inside that corporation may be made up of mostly women. So Sean, absolutely. We'll have in-person events. We will go to these places we will seek women out and we will, We'll try to educate them about this and we'll make them an offer they can't refuse. You know, download this app, try it for 30, 60, 90 days. Here's what you stand to gain. Then if you hate it, delete it off the phone and and forget about it. Yeah, I mean, and I think obviously from you know makes a ton of point as you were as you were talking through one of you know in terms of you know you've mentioned I think Avon or, or a few corporations like that and like you said you know almost the you could have sort of a, a shebang party if you will invite your neighbors and others absolutely and, so is is that sort of an approach a sort of I guess untraditional from the as you said from the sense of of traditional banking is are you are you guys thinking about approaches and, and, and that sense from a go-to market perspective? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, Mary Kay built a three and a half billion dollar company to use this approach. Avon at its heyday was $12 billion. Um, you know, this is, this is how you create communities of women and this is how you build their trust. And, you know, I don't think any banks or financial institutions use this method of building community or trust they just don't. And why would they? They don't know anything about it or how it works. This is not their, their forte. So they don't come from a direct-to-consumer or consumer marketing background. And, you know, banks have traditionally be, you know, been very traditional, very staid, very conservative, and for good reason. Again, I'm not criticizing them. It's just a massive disconnect, and they don't know anything about this world of women and this world of direct-to-consumer and how to use, you know, use this method to build communities and and spread the word about your product thank you incredibly insightful thank you julie sure thanks for your questions thanks julie and last question i'll take it from jeffrey he's asking about your leadership philosophy and i think there are some youtube videos of you giving lots of talks on the topic of leadership so the question is around what advice would you give mid-career professionals? And I think that's applicable to most of our community. We're mid-career professionals in the financial industry in terms of seizing new opportunities because you have, again, wealth of experience. So what's your leadership advice to the audience? Oh my goodness, this is, this is such a question. I am so incredibly fortunate because from a very early age, I had leadership examples of strong women and I had an incredibly supportive father Mary Kay Ash used to come to my house because the company was young. My mother was one of the top people in the sales force. I thought she was my grandmother. And when she would come, it was like the Easter Bunny, Santa Claus, you know, your grandmother and Tinkerbell, you know, like all wrapped into one. And so I just I just was so fortunate to just always think it was normal for women to be strong and have leadership positions. And then I also benefited immensely. 
you know, from my father teaching me about finances. And then when I got into the corporate world, sure, I was harassed. I've been sexually harassed. I worked in Manhattan in the 80s. You know, people are nasty. But then I've also been incredibly helped by male mentors, mentors who helped me. You know, one of the reasons I've been successful is I had a, a boss who basically gave me full power to hire and fire and to, you know, succeed or fail on my own merits. You know, it gave me enough rope to hang myself with, but because I had support from my teachers, my parents, other mentors, you know, I was able to, to use it to, to pull myself up, really. So I would say, don't be afraid to take risks. Stick up for yourself. Don't let anyone ever put you down. Don't let anyone ever abuse you or direct any kind of abusive behavior to you. I've had it happen to me. You know, confront them about it. Don't, you know, don't go to HR, but go to their boss or go to someone in your organization who, who has a vested interest in not allowing this to happen and say, I mean, I had a guy in the finance department threaten to kill me. And I went to my boss and I said, you know, he said he would, this is, excuse the F word, he said he would effing kill me if I ever said anything like that in a meeting again. I said, for the record, I want you to know this happened. And for the record, I want you to know that I will say that in a meeting because it's the truth. And so if you don't want the truth, you know, let me know now. I'll look for another job somewhere else. But this is unacceptable behavior. You know, say something, see something, say something. Don't let people push you around. And if that company is a place that puts you down, look for somewhere else. Look for a place where honesty, respect, and, you know, making other people successful is how you become successful. I would not be where I am today without all the people who helped me, mentors, teachers, supporters, and all the people that I was able to hire and then give them freedom to be successful. The more successful they are, the more successful I was. I rose up and was successful only because my team was successful. Bold advice from a bold woman. Thank you so much, <laughs> Julie. My okay. pleasure. This has been fantastic. Yeah. So let me pin the link again. That is for your website. By the way, how many beta testers are you looking for? Is it as many as you can find or is there a limit? Well, as many as we can find. I also want to give a shout out to Eric Henry from MX. I see him in the audience there. Eric is the one leading our implementation at MX. Eric, great to see you. But yeah, please sign up. If you're not in the first round of the beta testers, you know, you might be in the second round. And we, you know, we'll always be giving promotions and rewards to, to our member community. Lovely. Well, thank you so much, Julie, for coming on this show and just sharing your life journey and wisdom with us. This was really impactful. Well, at least thank you so much for having me, guys. It's been an absolute pleasure. That's all for today. Thank you for listening. If you like the discussion, we welcome you to join us during our live shows every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific on Clubhouse. We'd be delighted to have you there. You can also find other episodes on all major podcasting platforms, such as Spotify, Apple, Google, Audible, wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate if you could leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. Until next week, be safe. Thank you.